I'm going to take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 14 this morning. I know I'm supposed to do a Christmas sermon this morning. It seemed appropriate to take this text. So I hope you won't be too disappointed as we continue our journey through the book of Mark. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word if you're willing and able out of reverence for it. And we'll take our reading up in verse number 1 and end it in verse number 11. Uh, Mark writes these words, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, And he sat at the table. A woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we come to you just to praise you um, for the the glory and majesty, Father. Um, Not just that you have, but that you are. Just for the innate goodness, Father, the character, the holiness, the righteousness, the grace. Father, it ever goes before you. We're reminded again of that this morning. We're reminded, Father, of our insufficiency outside of Christ and that's our utter need of You. Father, we're reminded now as we approach the text that we simply need You. Father, we need You to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart, Father, that's tender to respond, that the Word of God um, may accomplish its purpose in our hearts this morning, Father. Even as I teach and preach, Father, would You would you speak mightily to my own heart? Father, would You bring those areas that are dark and dead to life. Father, would You bring light to the deepest recesses of my soul, Father, and would You um, instruct and lead me in those things, Father, that are honoring to You. Would You show me most of all, Father, this morning Christ and Him crucified. Would You exalt them in my own heart and thinking. Father, would You um, allow me this morning the blessed privilege of declaring God's truth with faithfulness, And would you use it, Father, not only in my own heart, but in the hearts, Father, of those that are gathered today. Father, would you accomplish an eternal purpose as we attempt to lay up some treasures in heaven. But that eternal work, Father, have a temporal measure to it. That it would provoke us to faithfulness, love for Christ, and love for one another, Father, while we wait for that blessed hope. Father, we trust you with these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. 
as I said, we have been over the course of the last year to a year and a half just journeying through the book of Mark. Uh, up to this point, we've seen before our eyes the story of Christ as Mark would have us to hear it, as he would tell it. We've seen Christ in much of His glory. We've seen Him as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've seen Him as the Messiah predicted and hoped to come. We've seen Him vindicate Himself as God through mighty miracles and deeds of the God-man. Things that the prophets were clear on that only God would do. We've seen Him radically heal the sick, give eyes to the blind, ears to the deaf, legs to the lame, and life to the dead. He has stayed the winds. He's calmed the seas. He's conversed with angels. He's revealed His glory on the mount in a way that had not yet been seen. He's preached the kingdom is at hand. He's preached repentance to the people, judgment against the disobedient, rebellious nation, and repentance uh, to and forgiveness to the repentant at heart. More than just preaching forgiveness, we've seen Him declare it as the agent in whom has sole authority to do such things. Um, in other words, He's none other than God incarnate. And we're reminded today, even as we approach the Christmas season, that, time, that there's a time in which we set aside uh, not to worship a pagan holiday, uh, to celebrate uh, our nation's idolatry of money, or its besetting sin of greed. That the time that we set aside, it's not about Christmas trees and ornaments, stockings, or the giving of gifts. It's not even inherently about a baby in a manger. It's not about farm animals surrounding Him on a cold night. It's not about Christmas carols and angels or wise men. While those things make us nostalgic and sentimental, um, if that's what we celebrate, then we miss the whole point. The point is, is that God is with us. It's about a sin-cursed, sin-filled world wrought by our father Adam that must be fought for in time and reality. Thus, God enters into the world as the, in the person of Christ, written beforehand by men like Isaiah who said, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, which uh, is interpreted God with us. Paul writes after the incarnation and he puts it like this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's what it's about. That's what this is about. It's about God in Christ humbling Himself, becoming like us in all points that He might die the death that you and I deserve, taking upon Himself the wrath recompense to the nations. That's what this is about. His birth is about His death. A birth that would, be set, in mo a birth that would set in motion a life and events um, that would culminate in His passion. That's where we are in the story of Mark. We pick up in Mark 14 in the middle of what we refer to as Passion Week. Many think that term was coined by Mel Gibson in the movie The Passion, depicting the torture and death of Christ. But the reality is, is that, that it was named The Passion much earlier than that. 
In the, as early as the second century, writings in Latin, even within the Word of God, uh, translations within God's Word, uh, writings were often referred to as Christ's passion. The Latin term for passion literally meant sufferings. It's a far cry from our use today, but originally it held the meaning of literally suffering. As we spend time in Mark 14 and 15 over the course of the next few months, we will recount our Lord's passion, His sufferings, and the events leading up to those. We are at the culmination of it all. To preach Mark up to this point and to fail to preach Mark 14 and 15 is to fail to preach the substance of the Gospel. There is no Gospel without the cross. There is no hope without suffering. There is no confidence for you and I without these words. All the Scriptures, all of Christianity, all of humanity hang on the veracity of these two chapters. Remove the cross and remove that which makes Christianity Christianity. It is its lifeblood. It is its substance. And that's today what we begin. We've began it in some sense in the past as we began the Gospel of Mark. But this is uniquely a portion that is given particularly to our Lord's sufferings. So let's begin. As you've seen up to this point, the developing confrontation between Christ um, and the Jerusalem authorities, we've now reached a point in the Gospel where it has resulted in a decisive break. On one hand, the authorities will no longer initiate any more dialogue with Christ. And on the other hand, Christ has abandoned the temple and pronounced a coming devastation um, in which we have rehearsed. Chapter 13 has given us the opportunity to ponder that reality. The coming destruction of the temple symbolizes the end of an old order. The loss of Jerusalem's significance is the focus of God's presence during that time and His activity upon earth. In its place is to be set up the, the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ, um, a vindicated and an enthroned Son of Man who will rule and reign from David's throne um, as He's ascended and exalted to the right hand of God the Father in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Who will gather the true people of God from all the corners of the earth into a new community of grace, a kingdom which is ruled in the hearts of men. All that now is inevitable. It's guaranteed by the indestructible Word of Christ. And now the time for talking is over. And it's time for the events to unfold that will secure that. That there is a means to accomplish that end. That it's more than just the words of Christ. He will carry it out with His own life and His own death. It's time for the events to unfold that have been insistently predicted by our Lord Himself. Verse 1 says, After two days it was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take Him by trickery and put Him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. It's more than appropriate that the events before us should be played out at Passover. That's what the text says. I don't want to spend a great deal of time on the Passover today simply because in the sermon, um, because we'll deal with that in a week or so, Mark, uh, Mark often brings a difficulty for preaching. <laughs> um, if you've been with us, you'll know and remember that when Mark tells stories, he often tells stories in a sandwich format. 
He'll begin with the story. Maybe some, people, some of you tell a story like that. Many preachers tell stories like that. Maybe I do. I'll get started on something and then divert with another story and then come back to finish it out. Mark um, is that type of writer. Um, he'll begin a story and in the middle of it, he will divert his attention and your attention to another story, ending with it, then coming back and ending with the original story. And that's exactly what you find here. You find in verses 1 and 2 that he introduces um, the chief priests and the scribes and that the Passover is coming and he reveals the plot to remove Christ. Um, and he reveals their hesitancy to do that. He then moves in verses 3 to 9 um, to a woman who anoints Christ in advance for his burial. And then in verses 10 and 11, um, he provides the solution to the problem for the scribes and the Pharisees or the chief priests in verses 1 and 2. Their hesitancy to, to, to take Christ and to crucify Him. But they find their solution in verses 10 and 11 as Judas brings Him and concludes to bring Him privately for money. And then in verse 12, um, we see that uh, progress into the preparation of Christ and His disciples for Passover. And then you even see it culminate in somewhat of a new Passover. The focus of today's sermon will be primarily verses 3 through 9. But at the same time, I don't want you to divorce it totally because I believe Mark um, sandwiches it for a purpose that there is a connection that we'll make probably at the end. That there may, very well may be a point to it. That a lot of times if I do divert, there's not much of a connection. It may just be a wandering mind. Rarely does Mark ever do that, if ever. That there's generally a point in which he ties passages together. And it's for comparison, it's for contrast, it's for parallel, it's to make a point. And maybe you'll see that point as we go. Anyway, the Passover is extremely significant. And it's not simple happenstance that Christ's crucifixion is coming as we approach Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You'll remember that the Passover is the Jewish festival that commemorates the occasion when the angel of our Lord, the angel of the Lord, passed over the homes of the Hebrews on the night that He killed all the firstborn of the sons of Egypt. The lambs used in the feast were slain on the 14th day of Nisan. And the meal was eaten that evening between sundown and midnight. And it would be a memorial to all the generations, even up to this point, of our Lord's Passover and His grace extended to those um, who had faith in them, in Him, as represented in the sacrificial lamb. The Feast of Unleavened Bread followed the Passover and lasted for seven days. Not only that, but the festival marked the original establishment of Israel as the covenant people of God, rescued from Egypt and slavery. And that's a huge statement. Because with Christ, there's coming a new Passover. With Christ, there's coming a new covenant. With Christ, there's coming a new people of God. In the midst of this approaching Passover and preparation for it, um, again, we find this account, verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Such an interesting story, just right in the middle of everything. And you wonder why. 
Let me give you the story. First, let's begin with some of the details. Where does it happen? Well, the incident takes place in a town called Bethany. Um, You'll remember that Bethany is a smaller town, approximately two miles from Jerusalem. It's a village at the Mount of Olives that literally means it can be translated the House of Dates. It's significant in Scripture for a number of reasons. You've seen Christ minister there. You've seen John the Baptist baptize um, his converts along the Jordan in Bethany. Probably the most prominent um, account that you'll remember, or one of the, the reasons that it will be memorable, is that a family very close to Christ lives there. The family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In John's account of this, in John chapter 12, he records Christ coming to Bethany and he says where Lazarus was who, who had been dead. That's how he identifies Bethany. He says that's where Lazarus was who had been dead. Whom he raised from the dead, it says, there they made him a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat with him at the table. The very same account as far as we can tell. So here they are. They're in Bethany. Who's with him? The text tells us that we are in Simon the leper's house. Now we assume that Simon the leper is no longer a leper. Um, Possibly one who Jesus healed. Otherwise, he would be breaking old covenant law, uh, being in contact with a leper who was unclean. So we imagine that this title, for whatever reason, um, he maintained If for no other reason, Mark uses it to remind us or tell us something about this man. He's possibly one who Jesus healed in His ministry and now He's showing tremendous hospitality to Christ. It's really hard to say. So where it's in Bethany, who with Simon the leper, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the one whom He raised from the dead? Why? We're not 100% sure. The occasion for dinner is not completely known. Simon, again, probably a leper who had been healed, um, desires to, to offer thankfulness or to, to fix him a meal or just to, to hold him there or to, to, to help him along the way um, as he's ministering in, in the area. We find that that often happened, especially with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Often they're just meeting the needs of Christ. When? A couple of days before Passover, the text tells us. So what? What's the what of the passage? What happened? Well, as Christ sat at the table, the text tells us that one of, the, uh, one of the gospel writers says that not only did he sit at the table, but he was reclining. Um, that would have been normal posture for meals during that time. It would have been common occurrence. And it seems kind of strange to us to think about sitting at the table in a reclining fashion, but it was culturally appropriate. It was not, not only that, but it was a common custom. Um, not appropriate, but it was a common thing. Not only was it a common thing to recline, but it was a common thing to wash feet, even at a meal. You'll find that later in John 13, after John 12's account. If you were in a reclining position, it would be um, a great benefit as you reclined. To, to, it would be much easier to wash a person's foot in that type of scenario. And, and not only that, but anointing feet, washing feet um, was common as well as... Um, it's not only washing of feet, but the, the anointing of feet was some, somewhat of a common occurrence in, in uh, the nation of Israel and Judaism. So this was a normal thing. There, there's nothing, I say, I'll say this, that this wasn't, this wasn't something um, extraordinary as far as an event goes. This would have been a normal gathering. Even the putting of perfume on the feet was somewhat of a tradition or a custom. Um, it was a courtesy. And in this case, though, 
we find that it moves to quite not so normal. Mary moves way beyond common courtesy, way beyond some sort of normal custom, because what she does is extremely extraordinary. It's even what some have termed to be lavish. She has an alabaster flask of a very costly perfume, the text says, a pure nard. Pure would give the idea of undiluted. Um, the nard or the, the perfume is what it means, was, was made from a root of a plant found chiefly in India and was very expensive. Matthew says that the, the ointment that she brought, the precious perfume, was a very precious perfume. This marble bottle typically would have a long neck a long neck and perhaps some kind of a small plug from which you would you'd pull out and it would be small drops of perfume that could be poured on it, sprinkled. Now, it's undiluted. I don't know a lot about perfume, but I know that most perfumes today don't come in, a, in an undiluted bottle, that it's a spray or something uh, to measure out uh, more appropriately um, the, the, the perfume so that it's not overpowering. I mean, those days, and even in this days, occasionally you'll find bottles in which it's totally undiluted, and what is used is just a very small amount to dab upon an area and to rub it in. That's what she had here. She had an undiluted um, perfume of a very costly, precious oil that would have been meted out over a long period of time that is a great value. And we know that it was because the text tells us that it was. Um, one is going to argue what they should have done with it instead of what Mary had done, and he argues that we could have sold it for 300 denarii. A denarii uh, would have been defined in Matthew chapter 20 and verse number 2. Um, your, your translation may say pence. It would have been defined as a day's wage. A man would have went and he would have worked all day. I mean, he would have came home with one denarii on many accounts. And you can factor in that 300 denarii would have been 300 working days for a man. Um, in that in that culture, you factor in he worked six days a week and he rested seven. Three hundred of days measured out with one day of rest would have been an entire year's wages. Um, in which uh, this young lady comes and she pours out lavishly on our Lord. Can you imagine spending an entire year's salary, first of all, on a bottle of perfume? Uh, who would do that? Well, I would say Mary probably wouldn't to be honest with you. Uh, women were by and large excluded from careers that would afford them the possibility of earning such wages or procuring such objects of such value. So the perfume of the nard here was probably a family heirloom, which makes it possibly even more costly, in which case it possessed somewhat of a heritage to it, a, a sentimental value in addition to its monetary value. That sometimes you can get 300 denarii out of something, but with the sentimental value attached to it, it's even greater than that. Sometimes it's invaluable. Sometimes it's something that you would never give away. That even naturally it could have been worth two days' wages, and because of what it means to that person in a sentimental value and from a, herit uh, a heritage perspective, uh, that this belonged to my grandfather, or this belonged to my great-grandfather, and while no one here would give a dime for it, I wouldn't give the world because of what it means. It very well could have been that for, for, for Mary. or for this. Un and Mark refers to her as an unnamed woman. Mark doesn't even name her. She proceeds to do, this unnamed woman proceeds to do something that would never be done in everyday life. It seems like a, a crazy idea. It seems like excessive. It seems like too lavish. It seems like um, something that is, that is rash. It seems like something, a, a crazy idea. 
Um, to take a perfume bottle that worth of that much um, and to utilize it like she did. And not only that, but not only in the, in, the, in the seemingly use of the entire bottle, but it's not practical at all. You know, John, if you read John's account, John actually says that when it was poured over his head, um, it, filled, it dominated. It says the house was filled with the fragrance of, of perfume. I bet it was, you know. Take an entire bottle of, of a, an undiluted perfume, and you can imagine the migraines that would follow. Um, it, it could have ran people out of the house if you would do it even in, in, a, in an area like this. And that's what exactly what she does. She takes it, Mark records that she breaks it, um, possibly signifying the, 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 the solidarity of such an act that it's not reversible in the totality of it. That there was no turning back and she, she literally pours it over his head. She drenches him with the entirety of, of the bottle. And that's the act. Um, verse number four. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And the text says that they criticized her sharply. Mark doesn't again name those who reacted so indignantly at the quote waste of the costly perfume. Matthew, however, does. Matthew tells us that those who were upset were the disciples. Matthew 26, 8 says, but when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? John says it was Judas Iscariot. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So who was it? Well, we would say it was both. It's not difficult to harmonize the passages. Um, it's very likely that Judas was the primary agitator of such an idea, and the disciples followed in agreement. Um, Calvin says in regard to this, none of the others would ever have dared to murmur if the wicked slander of Judas had not served for a torch to kindle them. That's probably true. He goes on to say, but when he began under a plausible pretext to condemn the expense as superfluous, all of them easily caught the contagion. Judas is probably the primary person with the objection because he's the treasurer, the one who handles the money. And then there's a mention of the poor. The mention of the poor is actually quite natural. Uh, it probably caught nobody by surprise. Um, Judas being the, the, um, the, the, the treasurer, the, the, the box keeper, the one who held the money and distributed it as, as they saw appropriately, um, but also during Passover, it was very common tradition among Judaism to actually give a tithe to the poor at Passover. Not only that, but Deuteronomy chapter 5, I believe it is, or, or 15, maybe 15, 11, um, that records that, that, that because the poor would always be with them, that they were to care for the poor. But we also know from John's account in John chapter 12 and verse 6 that that wasn't the motivation at all. Um, actually, John records this. Then he, this he said, Judas, speaking of Judas, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. And Judas was stirred by greed. He didn't care about the poor, he cared about himself. And one of the great tragedy here is that he polluted the disciples' thinking as well, even though they may have had a pure motive. 
Very well may be that their indignation was righteously um, provoked in the sense that they cared for the poor. I mean, it was provoked by a greedy man who cared nothing for the poor, but utilized the box for his own glory and his own gain. And it even says, John tells us, um, that oftentimes he would take it for himself. That he was a devil from the beginning. And he created this indignation in them that caused them to pass unjust judgment on this disciple Mary. Even to the point to where it seems like... It doesn't seem like it is anger. It is. You see, the sharp criticism that, that, that you see here is more than just um, agitation. And it's more than just a mere suggestion. The Gospel writers are very clear. These disciples were emotionally charged and stirred. Literally, it could be translated, they were very angry. Indignant. Expressed violent displeasure towards who? Towards Mary. It wasn't an isolated feeling of anger. It was an indignation with a direction upon an object. In other words, there was an object of their displeasure. What was it? It was Mary. It was not an it. It was a who, Mary. Mary wasn't a complete stranger to them, especially Jesus. No doubt they would have had met before. No doubt they probably enjoyed one another's company and the hospitality of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what we have here is this uh, disunity. What we have here is this contention created um, by the greed of a man towards and among the brethren. This is no small contention. Verse 6, But Jesus said and replied, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She's done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Jesus. So so what's happened so far? Um, we're in Simon the leper's house. We have an unnamed woman and they're in the midst of dinner. She possibly even, one of, one of the gospel writers says she comes in. She may have even interrupted dinner. She comes in. She has this thing in which is possibly, is extremely valuable, if not only financially, but, but, but sentimentally. It's, it's possibly her pension. It's probably her 401k. It's her heritage in which she, she sees Christ and she takes it, busts it open, and pours it out upon His head. They're indignant. Um, they're, they're enticed um, in indignation by a man who is filled with greed, creating contention um, within the home um, such that it puts one, uh, the disciples at odd with other disciples. And our Lord um, in graciousness, but also with, with, with uh, exhortation and correction, um, immediately speaks up. And what's his argument? He immediately rushes to Mary's defense. And it may be likely that they had thought that Jesus would agree with them. I mean, it sounds, it sounds, uh, sounds legitimate, right? Um, I mean, they have a legitimate argument, right? Um, it's not implausible. It's something that would have happened at Passover. It's something that was in the nature of Israel altogether for them to care for the poor. It seems totally like a legitimate argument to make. It seems logical. It seems reasonable. Why wouldn't we take that and utilize it here instead of there? Um, but at the same time, our Lord doesn't um, take um, their position. He has a totally different position. 
He doesn't condemn her, nor does He correct her. He commends her. Her action of pouring out an entire bottle of expensive oil on Jesus was seen by Christ not as irresponsible, not as a rash action, not as foolishness, but as a morally excellent, the text could even be translated beautiful work, and a lavish expression of her love and devotion to Christ. Not only does He not condemn her or correct her, yet commend her, but He admonishes the disciples for their rash and false judgment. And He says, leave her alone. Let her alone. Do not trouble her. Do not stand as an impediment to her worship. The basis of their anger and alleged waste of a valuable resource was not appropriate. And it's not that the perfume should have been kept, but that it would have achieved much more good. And that was their argument. It was a good argument. It's not that they should have just kept it and hoarded it, but that it could have achieved more good by being sold for the benefit of the poor than by being poured out over Jesus. One writer writes, their social concern is admirable. Unlike the unworthy motive in John 12 of Judas, he goes on to say, and would be echoed by many today. It must be quite an exceptional cause which justifies such lavish expenditure in preference to the undoubted benefits to many with which um, the sale of the perfume might have achieved. He goes on to say, and the onlookers, unlike the woman, cannot perceive such a cause in the presence of Jesus. It is on this lack of insights that Jesus will have to correct them and in doing so, vindicate the woman's intuitive action. End quote. We can't know whether their disciples' indignation is, 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 is owing to genuine concern for the poor or whether, as is often the case, the poor are simply used as a pretext for other motives. Whatever the motives, they regard the costly devotion of the woman's um, sacrifice as a waste. Their condemnation obviously demeans the woman and her gift. One writer writes, he, he says, same writer says, in asserting that there could be a better use for the money, however, they demean Jesus as well, whom they regard as unworthy of such extravagance. The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation, he says. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence, but it has a problem with too much religion. That is evident here. The unnamed woman deems Jesus worthy of her sacrifice, whereas the disciples do not. End quote. And it could be that it's in part because they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand the redemptive purposes of it. They're so thick-headed that they have their idea of what the kingdom is and what it will be that they can't think outside of Christ or within Christ's messianic reign. As far as I can tell, they've had a really hard time believing that Jesus will even die. Thus, this could have no use there. Or it seems insignificant in this point. So how could they understand the significance of an act which signifies that Christ refers to as the anointing of His body for burial, seeing that they didn't even understand that He would die? That it's not that... He's saying, men, that it's not that I don't care for the poor. Nor is it that I don't care for you to care for the poor. The point is, is that the poor is with you always, He says. But I'm not. That there is a season of opportunity here to honor the Messiah in a unique way. 
And you're tragically about to miss that. But not this young lady. That's the great contrast in this passage. And I want you to get it. That the significance of the Mark, and Sa- the Mark, Mark sandwich here, okay? That we have chief priests and scribes who are steeped in religion who should have got it. But instead, they plot by trickery to put him to death. Not only that, not only the religious leaders, but, but those who are on the inside. Not only the outsiders, but the insiders. In this text, you have a man like Judas who has labored with and alongside our Lord now for years. If anyone gets it, it should be him, right? But he doesn't. The disciples as a whole, outside of Judas, Judas, those who are even fervently, faithfully attempting to follow their Savior, even unto death, they miss the whole point. One would think that Christ's anointing for His burial would be a great procession in Jerusalem on temple property with great pomp and circumstance being led by the religious elites and complicated liturgy and all and the disciples all around on that night to celebrate our Lord and His death. And, to, and, 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 and it would be a night to remember. And what do we find instead? Christ is anointed outside of Jerusalem in an outcast house Simon the leper, by an unnamed woman. Out of all the faith he should have found in Israel, the faith he actually finds comes so lavishly from the most unexpected place. That's the point. And it's this faith that will be spoken of throughout all the world for the ages to come. That's the nature of the Gospel. That's the nature of Scripture. That's the nature of Mark's Gospel. That's the nature of Matthew. That's the point of John. At least in some point, that's the point of Luke. That what we have throughout all of Scripture and through the Gospel narratives particularly, and even within the epistles of Paul, um, is this Gospel that goes forth and this light that is given to so many. I mean, we held Him with our hands, John says. He was among us. And in the midst of it, when when, when the nation should have, have believed when the wise were there, when the skilled, when the theologians of the day um, gather around the temple and Christ is there such that they could hold Him with their hands and they could speak to Him and they could engage with Him. Um, it culminates in verse number 1 and 2 in a hatred for God that, 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 that supplants their minds such that they will coerce together in an organized, intentional, purposeful way such to murder the Christ. And when the, his death should have been uplifted and exalted by, by, by not only the religious elite in the temple, and while it should have been a time of celebration and honoring and, uh, within, within, within the, the religious realm, um, and, and among the disciples, they don't understand it and they don't get it. They don't get it. And faith is found in the place that you would least expect it. In an unnamed woman outside of God's city, the holy city, um, in a house in which most men will never breach the door. That's where He goes. That's where you find true worship. 
That's it. That's, that's, that's almost the same nature and point and purpose of, of, of Christ's birth. Like when we gather around, it's not about a manger. It's not about hay. It's not about a stable. It's not about this or that. It's about our Lord coming in, the Messiah of His birth, and He taking upon Himself and humbling Himself the form of a man um, such that, 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 that it should have been this great procession in which all of the world worshipped Him, and yet you won't find it in Israel. What you'll find is you'll find the religious elite plotting from his very birth to kill him. What you'll find is it culminates in his death. And along the way, what you'll find is some faith here and some faith there in some of the most unexpected places. And that's what we learn from this. At least that's what we should learn in part. It may not be all of it, but in part. That it is those things that we, we should learn that it is, in part, those things that we do solely for the sake of Christ that will be remembered. Maybe we can sum it up like this. It is those things that we do solely for the sake of Christ that will often be labeled by the world as utter foolishness. Not only that, but they will often even be scrutinized by the saints as imprudent or wasteful. Yet at the same time, they're worthy to pursue because it is those very actions that will be honored and received by Christ because they're born out of a pure devotion to Christ in their hearts. It will be no wonder why people are skeptical of such devotion. Outlandish they seem because pure devotion to Christ is rare. Rare they may be rare, but at least they're real. And they may be actually the only things that are real in this life. That may be the whole reason for this. Not only this story, but all of this life. That, that God would create such a theater in which devotion exists in the midst of such apathy and indifference. This lady um, worshipped and honored Christ. Such faith was found that was not found in the religious elite. It was not found um, in Judas. It was not found in the disciples. It was not found in those places that it should have been. Um... We learn a lot from this woman. We learn that she loved Christ. I think that's I think that's a great and probably the most pertinent point. So we'll turn to Luke chapter number seven. What do we learn from this? We learn that she loved Christ. In Luke chapter number seven, you, you read the account of a similar situation, although I don't think it's the exact same account. Much earlier in the ministry, and there's, there's too many discrepancies to say that this is exactly the same account, but, but this is what you read um, of another account. In Luke chapter 7 and verse number 36, um, you find a sinful woman is what the text says. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, 
Say it. Say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she was as washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who forgives sins? And then he said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And while it's not the exact same account, it is very comparable in, in, in many ways. And I don't think that is too far-fetched to argue that in Jesus' approval of this good work, he says, he says, leave her alone. She's done this good thing for me. For me. That the undergirding principle of the action in which she, she took and the, and the alabaster uh, box of oil and its, 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 its direct um, relationship and financial, sentimental, whatever you want to say, um, he says that she came and she poured it out lavishly for me. That the undergirding principle that directed the action which made it acceptable to the Lord was, was a devotion and an action of love for Him. For Him. That this is what undergirded in Luke chapter number 7, this sinful woman, the actions of her, that she comes in and, she, and, and, and again, they, they don't understand. The one who should understand doesn't understand. Um, the one who should get it doesn't get it. Doesn't understand it. Um, and the parable is clear. That this was born out of a love for Christ. And it is the love for Christ that undergirds and should undergird all faithful activity. Even the Apostle Paul says this. He says the love of Christ constrains us. That the one thing that motivated her was love for the Redeemer rising out of a heart of gratitude for the redemption He was about to accomplish. That that's what provoked her actions. That's what provoked her devotion. That's what provoked her activity. That's what provoked her obedience. And that's why she could do it with such zeal and with such joy and with such sacrifice. Why? Because what was before her in Christ outweighed all of that. It was greater than all of that. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 in that verse that says, the love of Christ constrains us. He gives us in some sense His motivation for all of ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.13 says, For we are, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. For if we are sound of, of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And if He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. That this is why we live. This is why we breathe. This is why we move. Romans chapter number 11. In Him, we, find, we have our being. And in Him, we, 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 we live by Him, through Him, and to Him. That this is the very purpose for our existence, and it's in Christ that we find a return of, of, of living for that original purpose as He redeems us 
from lawlessness and he gives us a righteousness and a love for him. Paul says that. He says that it's the love of Christ that compels us. And many have taken this uh, portion of Scripture, this one little uh, quip, and they've said, and they've argued that it's the love that we have for Christ. Um, I don't think that's what he's talking about there. You know, many people argue that, uh, you know, we, we love talking about, you know, you come to a church and, and a church that just preaches the gospel over and over again, and there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but so many people come to a church, they come to the church, they come to this church, they go to other churches, and they just want more. And it's not more in a good way. You know, I want to teach me something else. Let's talk about eschatology. Let's talk about end times things. Let's talk about family. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. I'm fine talking about that. But if what you mean is let's lay aside the gospel to talk about more practical things, you don't understand the gospel. I don't understand the gospel. Because it's an impossibility. You say, you know, for the last several weeks we've been talking about eschatology and some people have been loving it and some people have been just, you know, just mentally exhausted and I'm part of uh, kind of riding the line on both of those as well. But the reality is, is that, that our end times um, theology, that our eschatology of what we'll become is, 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 is grounded in the gospel. That there is not only a redemption of man and a new creation being wrought here, but one day it will finally and fully find its fruition in the redemption of all things. And it will only be because of the gospel. You know, I want to know how to you know, take care of my family. But Paul doesn't divorce that from the gospel. The love of Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, men, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But I want to talk about, I don't want to talk about the gospel anymore. I want to talk about discipleship. I want to talk about the, how, how men are supposed to train up young men and how women are supposed to train up young women, you know. Uh, ladies, uh, the older women teach, teach, uh, teach the younger women how to love their husbands. You can't divorce that from theology. You can't divorce love from the gospel. You know, that, that when I sit down with couples and I counsel them over and over again, it's like, give me some practical application. And time and time again, I don't know how to do that inherently. But I do know how to, how to lay the gospel before you. That it is the love of Christ that compels us. Not my love for Him, but His love for me. It is that gospel that is forever at the forefront of my mind and my thinking that provokes in me a love and a gratitude that, 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 that propels me and compels me to faithfulness. That's exactly what you find here. That this seemingly rash over-expenditure um, when looked at by um, even the disciples in a lost world, don't understand it. They don't get it. And I have people look at my life on many days and they just don't get it. You're, a, you're an intelligent young man with drive. You could do great things in the world. Why stop with your nursing degree now? You know? You could have taken it far. I even remember um, the first year out of uh, nursing school working on a floor, and, uh, and it was always great to tell them um, I was in seminary or a pastor, especially at the most inopportune times. It would surprise them. Um, but at the same time, I remember talking to a pastor um, who was, found out that I desired to be a pastor, and he said, son, don't give up your day job. And what he didn't mean was, you know, keep it there in case the Lord wants to use it and in a mighty way and you want to minister and this or that. He's been burned by the church so many times. He says, son, I have a backup plan. You know, you're going to need it in the future because the church is not what you think the church is. It's this and it's that, you know. 
have families that look at us and they just think we're the greatest weirdos in all the world. <laughs> you know, Some of them such that they, they, they look at us and wonder why we're raising our children the way that we're raising them and, 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 and employing certain things the way that we do. And, and we give so much time in this area and not, not in that area. And they look at us and they think, man, it's a waste. You're wasting your life. It seems extravagant. It seems extreme. Like religion's good to a certain point. But, 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 but son, don't waste your life. You know? You're giving too much to Him. You're not receiving enough in return. You know? Moderate it a little bit. Have a backup plan. If this thing doesn't work out, have something in place so that you can lean on that or, 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 or go a different route. I don't know of a different route. I have no other calls. You know? I don't know how to love God too much. My problem is, is that I love Him too little. I don't love Him as I ought. I don't love Him as I one day will be, but I seek to love Him as much as I can now. That was Mary. They didn't understand that. There was a redemptive purpose. As she was encouraging even her Lord during that time to anoint Him, I don't know if she understood everything that she was doing, but it seems like she understood much more than what the disciples did. And she utilized what she had. The text says that she did what she could. But that's what God requires. The idea is, 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 is that, that, that within her realm of operation, there was, there was so many th- only so much that she could do. You know, some are given five talents, some are given three talents, some are given one. Not everyone is expected to give all that, they, um, uh, all that everyone else is to give, but they are expected to give all that they can and all that they've been given. That's the idea. The five talents come, and you know what? How much should be invested? Five talents. That it may seem rash. And it may seem extravagant to the world and sometimes even to the church to want to give all those five talents. But at the same time, that's what God requires in faith. And thus we are to move forward and we are to even sometimes lavish the love that God has lavished upon us. Thus, she takes what she has. I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought that a little unnamed woman in the middle of nowhere rushing into a dinner party would be remembered for all the ages? You think about the world history, you think about all the kings and all the kingdoms, you think about all the emperors, um, all the skill, all the intellect, all of the philosophers, all of the, uh, all of the, the wise of the day. You think about all those men and think about, think about all the men that have been forgotten. Stories have not been written, uh, volumes have not been told, and within one generation to two, as great as they thought they were, they're gone. And what does Christ exalt? What does Christ elevate? This one simple uh, (laughs) alabaster box of oil. Why? Because it was an act of worship in which she was totally consumed with the work of her Savior. Maybe she didn't know what else she was supposed to do because that was all she had. And she knew she needed to give it. This was something that belonged to her. It was a work that requiring tremendous sacrifice and self-denial because it was hers. According to God's grace, hers, but nevertheless hers. 
This was something that was probably, again, a family heirloom or an inheritance. It was something that was without a doubt something of great significance to her. Um, if not because of the heritage, but because of the, the what it was financially worth. Maybe it carried a, a scent of her family, and every time that she put it on, it, she reminded her of her family. Maybe it was something that she would one day sell and make enough money to do this or to do that, um, or to give here or to give there, and then the Lord Jesus saves her soul. He gives her ears to hear and eyes to see, and she sees differently. She looks and she sees it differently. Whatever it was going to be, it no longer is. Whatever use she thought she had for it, it now changed. And it was not going to be what it was going to be used for. Now it's His. Now it's the Lord's. It's no longer hers. Now it's Christ's. Now it'll be used to anoint our Lord for His death. That this is what it's for. Some time ago, I thought that it would be beneficial for this. But it turns out that all this time, it was for Him. It was for Him. The Gospel teaches her that she has no regard for herself. She, she takes the spike in her, she breaks it, and she anoints Him for His burial. There's intention behind it. There's thought. I don't think there's as much rashness as many people believe with this. She comes, and she comes alone. She comes and she comes with a singular devotion. It doesn't matter what the disciples think. It doesn't matter what Judah says. It doesn't matter um, what, what the religious elite have to say. It doesn't matter that it's in Simon the leper's house. It doesn't matter that she's an outcast. It doesn't matter that he's an outcast. She has one goal in mind. I'm going to worship my Lord. And what is mine is His. So what did she do? She did what she could. And she worshiped the Lord. And she seized the opportunity while it was there. That's the point of the poor being with them. Right? Jesus wasn't nullifying their relationship to the poor or even their, their uh, responsibility to them. What, what He was clearly saying is He's saying, men, look, look, I'm only with you for this time. Seize the opportunity. Listen, man, there are some things and seasons in life that you will be able to honor God and you'll lose that if you don't seize the opportunity. That's the reality. That not only what has God given you may be there in the future, it may not be. There are seasons of life in which love to God is expressed in unique opportunities in which will never return again. Man, there's a, there, there's a time with your children at home. I don't know how many men I, you'll talk to in a, in a hospital or out of the world or within the family. Um, and they'll tell you they miss the opportunity. They're alive and they can serve and they can honor Christ now. But they're reminded every single day of a missed opportunity in which they should have loved Christ through loving their children when they were young, giving them the gospel, discipling them, doing a hundred other things. It's the same for women. The idea here is, is that the poor is with you always. There will always be opportunity. And, and what I'm telling you doesn't negate your responsibility to the poor, but know this, um, have eyes to see such that you utilize this opportunity here and now to honor Christ. She took it and they didn't. And they stand in total contrast of a missed opportunity. They'll have glorious ministries later, no doubt. But now they stand in opposition. They stand as a, as a picture of what not to be, man, and what not to do. And she seized it. Her love of Christ, her love for Christ was misunderstood. Our love for Christ will often be misunderstood. What we want to give, who we want to be, where we want to go, 
what we want to do, how we sacrifice, will often be misunderstood. And we must have resolve and commitment. to carry on faithfully even when you are because the reality of it is that he is the great judge not them and what does he say there in Mark chapter number 14 but he even in the midst of all the criticism he gives his approval and he says this was a beautiful thing that she did That there is a sense in which we serve Christ through serving men. But there's also a sense in which we serve Christ and Him alone. And while there's power in numbers, there may come a day in which, men, you will need to stand alone because you're convinced in your conscience and according to Scripture um, that this is what honors Christ. And you must, you must, you must I'm determined to care more about what he desires than what they do. That's the idea. You criticism, even of friends, brothers in Christ in the world, they're not enough to deter the devotion of this young lady. She's convinced in her mind and according to her conscience with redemptive purposes to exalt Christ and to encourage him and to prepare him in the work that he's been to do, been given to do that's that she, she loves him to the point to where not even the, the world, all hell, and as it gathers together, the world, the flesh, and the devil will deter her. Thus he says that she has performed a good work for me, out of love for me. It was an expression of sacrifice, of self-denial, and of utmost love for Christ that would not only reign in eternity, but even temporally. Her act of pure devotion to God was not only saw worthy to promote all throughout eternity, but all throughout the world. And that's quite the paradox. Those things that will be remembered are those things that you don't want to. That a man who seeks the glory and honor of himself to exalt himself, even in, in some sense of, of exalting God, well, it will quickly be forgotten. That it is God who exalts the weak. It is God who exalts the fool. It is God who exalts the incapable. It is God who exalts. Why? Because it's in those moments that they're just completely compelled to serve and honor Him regardless. She takes little notice of anyone else. All she sees is Christ. She uses what she has, not laboring to get what she doesn't, thinking that that would be a greater service. She has three talents. She takes the three talents. Criticism abounds all around, yet it does not deter her. And she's exalted simply for the love that she has for the Savior. Again, I want to say, it is those things that we do solely for the sake of Christ that will often be labeled by the world as utter foolishness. Not only that, but they'll often even be scrutinized by the saints as imprudent or wasteful. Yet at the same time, they're worthy to pursue because it is those very actions that will be honored and received by Christ because they're born out of a pure devotion to Christ in their hearts. It'll be no wonder why people are skeptical. Um, it's because they, 
It's because rare devotion to Christ, because pure devotion to Christ is often rare. And rare it may be, but at least it'll be real. And that may be the only real thing in this life. May the Lord give us such resolve to live just a single moment unmixed for Him. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever had one moment in your life in which you thought, I just loved Him. I did that because I loved Him. No accolades, no rewards, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter whether I'm, uh, I'm, I'm promoted. It doesn't matter whether I lose my job. It doesn't matter um, whether I'm exalted. It doesn't matter whether I'm thrown down. It doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is my love for Him. I don't know that I've ever preached a sermon solely for Him. I don't know that I've ever told the gospel completely for Him. I, I long for the day to where I'll die and He'll live. I long for the day to where I'll, I'll hate the glory and just desire Him. I, I long for the day where I'll see Him so lovely that it'll even take me not only through life, but even to death. I long for the day when I see Him face to face and I'll be like Him. I hear about Him a lot. I read about His wonder and His majesty and His glory and I, I think about the Gospel and the love wherewith He had for me. I think about Luke chapter number 7 and the devotion of that woman and I think about the immeasurable gap that He seems to have spanned for me. And I think about the, the glory of the Gospel and the love that He's expressed. I think about all that He's worthy of. I think about all that He deserves. I think about the worship that is due His name. And I, I think about how far I fall short of that and how there's a mixed devotion. I see how judgmental I am on many days of other people's devotion and I think that was foolish and I think that was outlandish and I think that was wasteful and I think I would have, I would have done that differently. I think about how many people I may have deterred even from ministry or how many people I may have deterred in discipleship or how many people... Um, why? Because I thought that they were crazy. And maybe we just need to be a little bit more like that. Convinced of Scripture, but also convinced in conscience. Overwhelmed with the majesty and the glory of Christ such that, that it causes us and provokes in us a devotion that is otherworldly. That the world would look at the New Testament church and say, that these are fools for Christ who have turned the world upside down. Nevertheless, their foolishness for Christ turned the world upside down. Save Christianity is the cultural Christianity of the day. And I argue oftentimes for moderate men in the sense of just day-to-day -day faithfulness. But what I don't mean by that is it's safe men. What I mean by that is men who have a radical Christianity convinced of Scripture that this is what they do and they are to do it and it is to be radical. And that we are to take risk and we are to be outlandish according to the world's standards. But what that is is simple love and devotion to Christ and love and devotion to Christ alone. That that's what we need. And it will come from the most unexpected places. Not from kings and emperors, not from universities and seminaries, but from peasants and paupers. 
The father will exalt his son by confounding the wise with weak and foolish men and women. Don't count them out, though, because their devotion to Christ will be unmatched and that they will find strength to turn the world upside down simply because they love God. My prayer for us today is that we would simply love Him. And that we would love Him with an everlasting love wherewith He loved us. And that love would provoke us to faithfulness and sometimes even outlandish things as we pursue the redemptive purposes of God. You know, we talk about it a lot, don't we? We talk about the nations being reached. We talk about the gospel going forth. We talk about um, God prospering. We talk about um, just so many things, saving marriages. And I wonder if we ever really believe He's able to do that. Talk to people about the world going to hell in a handbasket and you see Jesus Christ died to secure the nations. And we know, we know philosophically or theologically that that's true. That's what He desires. That's what He died to accomplish. But we look at the world and we say, that's never going to happen. I mean, look at it. You talk about the world actually being reached with the gospel, people look at you like you're crazy. You know? They look at you like, you're, like you've got three eyes and two heads. And what a deterrent it has been for the gospel. All I'm begging you to do is to read the Scriptures, know Christ, love Him for who He is, be ready to be forgotten, and live, him, live for Him outlandishly and radically um, that the world may know. Be like this unnamed woman um, who simply loved God with what she had out of pure devotion for Him, unmixed. And may God say to Christ Bible Church and to me, that was a good work. That was a good work. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. We thank You for the privilege it is to call upon Your name. We thank You, Father, uh, for Scriptures like these. Father, I want to preach. And even today, I don't know that my preaching was unmixed. Father, I want to be faithful. And so much of me was still there. Father, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to love you like I should. I don't know how to serve you like I ought. I don't know how to believe you like I want to. I don't know how to desire you, Father, more than I desire other things. I need you to teach me. I need you to take your spirit and word of God to places in my heart, Father, that I don't even know are there. God, I love the world. I love my flesh on many days. Father, I read about things like this, and I say that's true. And I'm not like that. I'm sorry. Father, would you make me like that? Would you give me a love for you, Father? That is unparalleled. 
would you make your son the treasure of all the ages? Father, would you help me to pursue him with the utmost joy? Father, would you give me praise in my lips that abounds out of my heart, Father, for gratitude? Father, I care too much about what other people think. Father, I fear man. And on many days, it's an impediment and it incapacitates me. It debilitates me. And I'm sorry. Father, I don't want the glory. But I don't know how not to take it. Your son is worth so much more than me. And what I have to give. Father, you are so gracious. Sinners like us. Father, your love abounds and goes before you. Father, would you help us? Would you continue to be patient with us? Would you continue to lavish your love upon us? Would you continue to show us Christ? Would you continue to make us more like your son? Father, would you help me to love my life like Christ loved the church? Father, would you help me to love my children and to be faithful? Father, would you help me not to care about what the world thinks, about what the saints believe? Father, would you give me just a few moments in this life? taste what it'll be like in all of eternity to simply love you undiluted unmixed untarnished but you give me a few moments father where it's just I'm living in a world but it's just you and me to accomplish this because we can't we never will but I'm convinced it is our greatest need Father would you teach us how to love you would you give us a greater love for you And it would be a love unparalleled that the world would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our allegiance is with Christ. May they argue that it's excessive. May they argue that it's foolish. May they argue that it's a waste. Let them argue. But let us rejoice in you the entire time, not being deterred because of the fear of man, 
not only in life, but in death. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name, again, because we know that we can't accomplish it. Amen.